Well, Christmas is absolutely wonderful, isn't it? It is. There's so much wonder in it. During World War I, at first light on Christmas morning, some Germans left their bunker and made their way across this area called No Man's Land, and there would have been a lot of barbed wire. It was a dangerous middle area. And they learned an English phrase. It was Merry Christmas. And they were saying, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And the Allies were terrified. They thought it was a trick. And as they came closer, nobody was shooting them. They realized they were unarmed. And the Allies came out of their bunker. And they shook hands. And they they realized that the Germans had brought them gifts. And there's some fascinating photos from the time. Um, this is a no man's land, and they're all in this little area, and they're exchanging gifts, and there's another photo. They're exchanging um, cigarettes and plum pudding, and there's some other bunkers down the western front that were too afraid to leave their bunkers, so what they did is they were singing Christmas carols to each other, just like one, the Germans went, and then the Allies, and they just went back and forth, back and forth, and many of these soldiers said that these were the best memories of their entire lives was that Christmas morning. There's something so wonderful about the holiday. If you think about it, there's unique music, and music triggers memories, doesn't it? There's unique food. There's like really unique traditions and inbuilt family times that we don't do in any other times. And because of this, we have a lot of memories. But this is also what can later make Christmas so challenging at the same time. It's those crystallized memories around songs and traditions that become really troublesome. Uh, A really influential person in my life growing up was Toby Mac. And his music really influenced me. And his son passed away about a month ago at the age of 21. And, And as they were at his funeral, like there's all these images that he's constantly posting to social media. And at his funeral, there was so much just emotion and loss. And then Thanksgiving came, and all the family tradition around Thanksgiving, he said, how are we going to do it without Truett? That was his son. And now Christmas is coming. And he's like, how do we do Christmas without Truett? You see, we all have memories of people that have passed away, that aren't here anymore. And at Christmas, just, it just screams, doesn't it? Their absence I know that at our Christmases, um, Papa G's not there, and it's like, oh, you just miss. There's just this longing in all of us. And, and Christmas brings up just feelings of lots of times if there's been divorce or if there's been children that have gone astray or perhaps past themselves or friends. Christmas just has this way of just highlighting strained relationship, doesn't it? And, and we kind of look around, and everyone else seems happy, and we think, oh, there's something... There's just something not right about my family or me. And Christmas is this incredibly wonderful time, but it also highlights a lot of pain, doesn't it? And we need to acknowledge a tremendous tension and that God does fill our hearts with joy. So what Scripture is clear on. God does give us peace that passes understanding. This is what all of Scripture is about, is that the Holy Spirit gives us His fruit, doesn't He? And it's wonderful. But the tension is that although we live with his fruit, we also live with what Paul calls this groaning. This is what he says to the Romans. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
This is quite a metaphor that he uses, this childbirth metaphor. And we all have our unique groaning. Melissa was putting the dog out. We got a new puppy. And, and it was too cold. It was minus 15. And she's like, no, he can't sleep outside. So she brought him in the house. And then she just burst into tears. She just said, I won't even let my own dog sleep outside. And there's all those people in the tents. They're all outside tonight. And she's like, we have to go help. And it was like midnight. And I think as a city, we all groan over this, don't we? Like, we just see so many people outside right now, and it feels so wrong. We, we feel like maybe we've failed in some way. Maybe the city has failed. No matter what it is, we all, we all kind of groan. I came into the church, and there was a tarp on the lawn. And, and I said, Tony, what's that tarp over there on the lawn? And Tony just looked at me sheepish, and he said, there's a guy sleeping under that sitting up. He was sitting up so that he could stay a little bit warmer and he's sleeping underneath this tarp and it's, it's like minus 12 out. And we just groan. It's like, oh, that shouldn't be like that. I preached at Metro last week and this lady came in crying because her best friend Lily just got stabbed outside of the mission five minutes earlier. And, and everyone was like, they knew this lady and there's just this collective feeling of this isn't the way that it should be. Another lady came and wanted prayer because her son, who they moved to Kelowna to kind of get away from the lower mainland, got addicted to crystal meth, and, and now her daughters won't come home because she's, they're afraid of him. And just, we were so sad. And this is sort of the world that we live in. We all have our own unique groaning in this room, don't we? I remember years ago when we, we had a care group with the seniors, a bunch of us, the youth kids and the seniors, and, and many of the seniors in our group had left World War II, had fled Germany. And, and they were just telling stories of the concentration camps. And our kids were like so deeply moved by that. But we've all had things in our life, death of, of spouses or disease, children that are prodigals. We have moral failure that has upended our families. We have illness, people wanting to get married that haven't. I mean, this is the tension in the world, isn't it? The fact that God fills our hearts, but we're mortals. And, and here's, here's the reality of that, is that we're mortals that love like immortals. We love eternally. And so that's challenging because we were created for eternity, weren't we? Where love never comes to an end, but here on earth, because we're mortals, but we love immortally, there's trouble. My Papa G said in some of his last years, he said, you know what? Every friend I had is gone. They're all gone. And he had to mourn each of their losses and, and all of his brothers and sisters. And it was just a challenge. We were, we're mortals that love like immortals. And secondly, we live amongst sin. And because of that, there's trial. The amount of pain, I believe, just even in this room from pornography alone is astronomical. The rate at which it destroys families is, is incredible. And Paul gives us this beautiful metaphor of childbirth. I believe that it's chosen intentionally because childbirth is perhaps the worst pain. I mean, this is what I hear. Is that right? Childbirth is horrible. <laughs> but perhaps. <laughs> Phil seems to have a different pain that's worse. <laughs> but it comes with this wonderful promise. What is this promise that Paul is speaking of? He's speaking about 
this life that's being born that is worth the childbirth, the pain of that. And we're going to get into that. In Hebrews 11, it says that we long for a better country. Paul is saying that we weren't meant for this place. You see, this is where Advent starts. Those candles, those flickering candles, the reason why they flicker in the dark is because they point to something far greater. And so we're going to talk about that. We're going to hear an incredible story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 1. We're going to get into Advent as Luke decided to start his Advent story. And it's kind of an unusual start, and it's not where we always go, but it's where Luke went. So Luke 1, we're going to start in verse 5. He starts it this way. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, by the way, in documents like this, when you start it in a way like that, every reader would have understood what he was saying. He's setting the context. It's kind of like if we were to say, in Kelowna, during the time of Justin Trudeau, everyone would be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're saying. He's saying, in the time of King Herod. This is really important because King Herod was ruthless, horrible, terrible. King Herod killed the most 35 prominent Jewish men when he came into power. If he had a wife that he suspected was talking behind his back, he would kill her. So the church was under intense persecution. That's what's happening here. Who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So these two were legends, Zechariah and Elizabeth. These two, so Zechariah was a priest, and Elizabeth, she was from the line of Aaron. So the line, this was a woman that had like, they were highly respected. I think this is probably what they would have looked like, something like that. <laughs> it's Arnie and Louise. <laughs> when I think of, I was thinking of who in the world are these two, it would be Arnie and Louise. They were... <laughs> It was kind of that age range. They would have been considered too old to have children, and, but she would have wanted children her whole life. They were highly respected. Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. This was their shame. For a woman to not be able to have a baby at that time meant she had no value. And many men would have divorced her in that situation. She calls this her disgrace. It was seen as punishment from God to be barren, and so they thought that she must have done something wrong. There would have been a lot of gossip about her. They would have said, Elizabeth seems so godly, but she obviously is a terrible sinner. And this is her disgrace. Everybody would view her in this way. You're from the line of Aaron. Why don't you have a baby? So they thought she did something really bad. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time came for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Okay, what's happening here? He was a part of this company of 700 priests. They traveled in 700s. That's a big, that's a big staff. And there's 24 
groups of 700. So we're talking priests for days. We're, they're all over the place, these priests. And so he's a part of 700. And they need to go into the holy place to burn incense. And so they casted lots. The odds of him getting in were 1 in 700. Not high. And they only got to do it every or twice every year. So the odds of him ever have done this before are astronomically low. So he gets chosen to go into the Holy of Holies. Imagine. He goes through the curtain that was split when Jesus died. He goes through it, and now he's in the Holy of Holies. And this would have been a room about 15 feet tall, so about from here to the the black right there, and about this big from here to the wall and as big as this stage. So he walks into the Holy of Holies, and his only job was to walk in, go to the table of incense, light some coals, wait for the incense to raise some smoke, and then bow and back out. That was his job. That's all he had to do. It was a huge privilege, but it was also full of fear because you could die if there was unconfessed sin. But what happened that day had never happened before, ever. He's never been in there, so he probably doesn't know what to expect, but not this. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. This is crazy. The last time, this is Gabriel. The last time Gabriel showed up was 600 years earlier to Daniel. Gabriel's the most powerful angel. Imagine you're in this 15 by 15 room and there's an angel that looks like lightning and probably fills the whole room with glory and you're thinking, is this how it always goes? Is this what it's like? Oh my goodness. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son you're to call him John. This is very unusual that she would say John. Well, for many reasons. But usually they would take the name of their father or grandfather. So by saying his name was John, this was a massive shift. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. Wow. So this angel shows up and says this. Do not be afraid because God has been listening to you. Isn't that kind of counterintuitive? If I'm really afraid of something, I'm going to hope that the angel's going to say, Do not be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. Do not be afraid. I'm not armed. Don't be afraid. I'm good. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't really give a reason why not to be afraid and why he won't be killed, except for because God has heard your prayer. You see, this has been their prayer for decades to have a baby, and no baby came, and they had this fear that God wasn't listening to them. They had this fear that they were forgotten and all alone, and that their prayers were just going into an empty sky. Gabriel goes for their real fear first. You're not forgotten. You're not ignored. I'm not ignoring you. See, they watch their friends get pregnant, 
They watch them have children. They watch them snuggle their kids. They watch them kiss their children. And we all see this, don't we? We see, we see our prayers go unanswered and other people enjoying the blessings that we want. Like we might see a wedding picture online and be like, oh, why can that be me? Or we see other people going to, to church with their children and being, why can't my kids go to church? Or we see other people with their spouses or we see other people on vacation, other people living healthy. And we just think, oh, why isn't God answering me? This is our biggest fear that God has forgotten us, that my prayer is going into an empty sky and he's not listening. I think if we were to be honest, we've all had that fear, just like Elizabeth and Zechariah, like, God, are you hearing my prayer? He is listening. This is a powerful psalm. Psalm 56 You keep track of all my sorrows. This is from the New Living. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. What a powerful statement that he hears our prayer, that he records them, that not one slips by him, that he hears us. We're not forgotten. You see, God answered their prayer, and now they have a baby. And so we might think, okay, now they've arrived. Now life is great. They've gotten what they always wanted. And thank you, God. He's delivered them out of the pit. And now they don't groan anymore. It's not what happens. Right after this, Zechariah was murdered. Most theologians say that this is what Jesus was speaking about in Matthew 23. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. He was murdered in the temple. God answered their prayer. You think the groaning's over? He's murdered. In 2003, there's an excavation in the Kidron Valley, and they discovered this monument called Absalom's tomb. It's a real fascinating find. And as they went into it, they found this inscription on one of the stones, and it read this. This is the tomb of Zechariah, the martyr, the holy priest, the father of John. Like he was murdered in the temple. And after this, Josephus claims that they lived as poor people, as wanderers, that they lost their home when their father died. And then John was put in jail. And when the king had too much to drink and a girl tempted him and said, I'll dance for you. He said, I'll give you whatever you want. And he, she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on the platter. And that's exactly what happens. Their son, who was miraculously given to them, is presented at a party on a platter. It's a crazy turn of events. You see, this is what Jesus said to people. He said, you're going out to see John, aren't you? You're out to see John baptize people. And he says, what did you go and see? A man in fine clothes? A man living in luxury? He says, that's not what you went to see. He is, he is intentionally living for a completely different kingdom. His message is so countercultural. There's a glory coming that makes all of this stuff look terrible. 
His life had a much higher meaning. Mother Teresa used to walk by a Hindu temple. She started a hospital right behind it. And when she'd walk by, they said that, that many people would throw rocks from the temple at her. And one day she walked by the temple. She would keep her distance out of throwing range. And she saw a man on the steps. It was a Muslim imam. And, and she went up to him and, and he was left out there because he had leprosy. And he was left on the steps to die. And he was so skinny that even though she was tiny, she scooped him up. And they're throwing rocks at her the whole time. She scooped him up and brought him over to the hospital. And she stayed with him until he died. She said that they never threw rocks at her again. And people asked why she had chosen to do that and and to take that beating and to just live in this way. And this is what she said. She quoted Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. She had a very different lens in, in her life. See, Scripture says that our life is a vapor. We all know this. But there's a glory coming, this childbirth, this life that cannot possibly be contained within our flesh that will soon emerge. This is what Advent is about. It's about the fact that we cannot keep this glory away. We cannot keep it down. It's coming. It's coming. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Their problems were not light. In Corinth, they were, Nero was killing Christians and lighting them on fire. Paul is saying, it's light and momentary compared to what's coming, my brothers and sisters. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary... But what is unseen is eternal. Remember, we're mortals that love like immortals. That's on purpose. Because what's coming is eternal. And the love that we feel toward each other will be expressed in eternity. This is amazing. The lens of Christianity is eternity. And this eternal glory outweighs it all. We get eternal glory. Oh, he is so present and he hears our prayers and he draws extra near to us when we groan. And even in the groaning, he is so present. When, when Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus has died, he waits a long time, four days. And by the time he gets there, Mary and Martha are so distraught because they believe that not even Jesus could heal him now because they believe that the soul stayed with the body for three days. And so now the soul is gone, and they thought all hope was lost. Jesus shows up and knows full well what he's about to do. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus. He knows his end. He knows his future. But Jesus gets there and is so moved by the tears of Mary and Martha, that Jesus does something unexpected. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. It doesn't say 
He was sad. It doesn't say he cried. He wept. He was weeping. And he knew he was about to raise him. But even in their temporary pain, he was moved. And he knows that your pain is temporary. He knows your glory. He knows that you're going to stand before him in paradise. This is revelation. The 12 elders dressed in white, that's you. He knows your future, but your temporary pain moves his heart. This is wonderful. He knows our eternal glory. And so quickly we forget our future and we lose hope and we forget that God will give us resurrected, glorified bodies. Amen? This is our future. I get a new body. I'm not going to have psoriasis. Or I'm going to have hair for days. I can't wait. We get resurrected, glorified bodies. Amen? And so often we forget that our, our, our glory is coming. You see, John was facing death. When Jesus was on the cross, what he did was he looked down and he picked John because he was the only one left. Everyone else deserted him, but John was there and he said, John, look after my mom. Please look after my mom. Many theologians believe that this is why John lived the longest of the disciples because he had a mission that required that he kept going on living. He said, look after my mom. And then... As he was on Patmos, they had arrested him. They had boiled him in hot oil. Just imagine. They dipped him into a pot of hot oil. And he's laying on the floor of this prison. And all of his friends have been murdered. Every disciple's gone. And his best friend was Jesus. And Jesus has seemed to have left him. He's gone. Jesus is gone. Remember, Jesus and him were so close the King James Version says that at the Last Supper that he laid on his bosom. This like incredible friendship and Jesus is gone and the church is under harsh persecution and, and he's probably thinking like, I have no hope here. And Jesus shows up to this man who has no hope. He's probably just a massive open wound. And listen to what Jesus says. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And listen to this. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. He's saying, Are you afraid of death, John? Look what I have right here. I have the keys to death. He reoriented his lens and said, this is light and momentary trouble. Guess where you're coming? You're coming with me. This is what Jesus would say to us. He shows up. He mourns with us. Our tears are held in a bottle. And he says, I care about every one of them. But he knows the future that's coming. Amen? This is Christmas. Because at Christmas, sometimes we just think, I, I don't feel happy I look at all my trouble, I groan, and the Advent says, but look up. Your life is a vapor. I'm coming back for you. This is beautiful, beautiful news. This is news that the world needs because we love like immortals. We do. And 
and death has a sting when we forget who we are and we forget that we've been purchased and we are eternal beings. We're going to meditate on some scripture for a bit and what we're going to do is we're going to remember our future. We're just going to pause and just remember who we are. That we're not a body with a soul, we're a soul with a body and it's passing away. And, and this, this birth that is happening in us, our bodies can't hold it down any more than, than a mother can stop the baby from emerging from within her. It's coming. This life is coming. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to meditate on Scripture. So Jesus, I thank you that you hear our prayer. God, I thank you that you... Do not forget us. I thank you that you are right here. I thank you that you give us real hope, God. Real, solid hope. God, that it's not just positive thinking, God. It's not just feeling happy for a couple days at Christmas, God. It is eternal glory for your sons and your daughters. Thank you, God, that you've delivered us. Jesus, I pray that this holiday that we would have the lens that Mother Teresa had, God, and that Paul had. God, I pray that this would be a holiday that for those of us in this room who are in the middle of that groaning, that you would show up. You say that you you draw close to us in our pain, God. So we invite you, we invite the Prince of Peace to come and speak to us in these times, God. We love you so much. Amen. So Jesus later spoke to John again, revealed to him his future and it changed everything in his heart. He says, and I saw the holy city. He was able to see his future. Jesus gave him the privilege of seeing his future. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe every, away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. This is our future. He said, right for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Praise the Lord. And Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also. 
My father's house had many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. This is our future. This is our, this is our eternity. Praise the Lord. Let's worship together.